This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hi, and welcome to Graphic Novel TK. I'm Gina Gagliano. And I'm Allison Wilgus. We're excited today to be talking about comics and libraries, the ultimate home of all books, and a place that comics are now featured prominently in. We have amazing librarian Robin Brenner here today to talk to us about comic space in the library. Robin, can you tell us a little about who you are, how you started reading comics and then working with comics and what you're doing now? Uh, Sure. So hello, everyone. I am a librarian right outside of Boston. Um, I grew up in the Northeast, uh, just north of the city, and I have always been a reader. I've always been an artist, and uh, I always liked the combination of words and pictures. As a little kid, I always dreamed of actually being a Disney animator. Um, That was my goal for a long time. Um, But oddly enough, I didn't ever read comics as a kid in the same way that people do now. Um, I read a lot of strips, comic strips, newspaper comic strips, as well as things like Archie. But I never really read a graphic novel as we've come to know them now um, until the middle of high school. And even then, I didn't really start reading graphic novels until I was an adult. So I've always loved the idea of the art form. So, you know, art and pictures together is a great thing to do, in my opinion. But it is something that I didn't really know existed until almost after college and into uh, my career as a librarian. Um, I can say that the reason I became a librarian had mostly to do with the fact that I was a creative writing major in college and a fine art minor. And I that does not put you on a career track. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you just kind of think, well, I can write and I'm visually decent. Um, So I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and realized that I had volunteered in libraries ever since middle school and then ended up um, working in my high school library, my college library. And at the end of college, I was watching the reference librarians work and kind of went, I could do that. That would be interesting. And so that's where I started applying for jobs right out of college. And I was very lucky to get a really great position at my first library job where I didn't have the official master's degree yet, uh, which I don't know if many people know that you need, you do, usually you need to have a, a master's degree to become an official librarian. It's like master's in library science. Is that what it's called? Yep. It's usually a master's in library science. Now it's a library in information science. <gasps> There's like a range of different things. Um, and so I got that master's degree eventually. But, um, but initially, I had this job where we could work in every department in the library just to see what it was all about. So I worked in the children's department. I worked at the circulation desk. I worked in the behind the scenes in what's called technical services, where you do all the processing on the books, like typing up labels and mending books and all this stuff. And so I got to see the entire library as an organi- organization and decide which parts of it I liked. Uh, so that was really exciting. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, that's kind of my trip into being a librarian. Um, I've always loved stories in every possible form you can think of, from comics to movies to television to books. Um, So all of that, you know, works well in my job. (laughs) So can you tell us how you started getting involved in comics in the library space? Sure. Um, When I was starting out in my career, I was actually in library school. And this was around the year 2000. I had just started library school and I was working to help our teen librarian. And she came to me one day and basically said, the high school librarian said we should have graphic novels 
we should figure out how to do that. Can you, can you look into that and see what we should do? And I think she assumed that I already knew about comics just because I think people assumed that in general, that I was like aware of more pop culture than perhaps other folks on staff. I'm not sure why, <laughs> but, um, and I, I did know a bit, I, you know, I knew kind of basics of what comics were, but it had been a very long time since I'd sat down and read them or knew how they should be collected in a library. So I did what librarians do, which is I did research, um, and I found a lot of articles, a lot of recommended lists. I read all the graphic novels that people said at the time were, you know, the top 10, top 20 that you should read. Um, and I was personally kind of delighted because I suddenly was like, why has no one told me about this format before? This is perfect. Um, but then as a librarian, I started to see, oh, okay, this is this is an exciting medium that we should collect and it's uh, something we should look into. At the time, when you think about the the timing of the years, uh, around 2000 was when Japanese manga started to become extremely popular uh, with teenagers and, and especially with uh, young readers. But the library world was completely flummoxed by them because they didn't really understand what they were. Most people didn't read them. Um, I think more people had a connection to things like superhero comics or even Little Lulu, the kind of the old school comics that people might have a reference point for, whereas Japanese comics just seemed completely out of their experience and they couldn't figure out why on earth it was appealing. Um, so that's kind of where I started, is explaining that and explaining why we should have comics at all in a library. Thankfully, my library, the uh, administration and, and my supervisors and that teen librarian, everyone was on the same page. Everyone wanted to get comics into the library for teenagers so that's where we started. Um, and then actually I do remember about a year, I would say about a year after that was when I started arguing that we should have graphic novels for all the ages. <laughs> so not just for teenagers, that they were something that a lot of people liked, that there were a lot of graphic novels that were for adults or for small kids. And that it seemed strange to me that libraries are, at least in public libraries, you collect for all of the age ranges in very broad category of kids, teens, and adults. Um, and I kind of kept pushing for that as something we should keep doing. And I was allowed to test it out at our branch location. We had a very tiny branch that was an old mansion, um, like a kind of Victorian mansion house. Oh my God. <laughs> um, so it was very small. Uh, and right, the main audience at that branch were the people that went to the Waldorf school behind it <laughs> and senior citizens. Uh, so those were like the two crowds that came in. And I said, well, why don't we try it? Why don't we try graphic novels for adults, put that at the branch, see if anyone like likes them, reads them, see if they circulate out to other libraries, you know, see what happens. And I believe we had about 20 graphic novels to start and they immediately started going out. And what was amazing was actually, I think people dismissed the idea that senior citizens would be interested or seniors in general. And they were completely interested because of course they grew up reading comics and they were like, hey, I haven't seen this in a while, let's try this. And they were very adventurous and loved to read everything that we brought in. So it really proved really quickly that there was an audience that was not being served, uh, which is something that libraries are always trying to figure out. Um, so that's kind of how that got started. And then I started to become the graphic novel person at my library, as happens fairly rapidly. If you if you become a comics person <laughs> um, in the field, then you'll start to get questions and uh, referred to by your colleagues, um, whether either patrons or the other librarians are asking about the format. So... 
That was in the early 2000s. And I know your experience of looking at your library and seeing like, there aren't comics here, maybe we should try something in that, that period was not unique to you. It was kind of happening in a lot of places across the US. How did we get from there to where we are today with comics and libraries? Well, I think the biggest changes actually did happen almost at that time. I I have been enormously lucky in my career that I got interested in comics at the time when the boom in the market was starting, um, specifically the boom in bookstores. And that, of course, you can go into the giant shifts of Barnes & Noble and them having manga on their shelves and the power of teenage girls reading manga was huge. Um, and it, it it pushed the idea that comics were intended for one, all kinds of audiences, and two, were not limited to what we think of as the traditional like superhero mainstream comic book store type of comics. Um, not that there's uh, you know any issue with that as well, and and libraries had already started collecting those. But I think there were a lot of librarians that were kind of skeptical of how much we should be collecting. And they, you know, they came at the format with a ton of stereotypes about what they were, that they were all juvenile, that they were all superhero comics, um, that they were all fantastical and nothing realistic. So there are a lot of different things that you were kind of fighting through at that point. And um, the thing I think that convinced most librarians initially was the, the sheer fact that they were incredibly popular and they would circulate better than almost any other collection you could have. As soon as you put them on the shelves, they'd start going out. And um, in my library, especially, the teenagers were voracious at the time and would read almost anything we put out there. That was the very early days of manga, too. So it was, you know, Sailor Moon and the the kind of early shoujo manga that was falling apart all the time because everybody was reading it so much mm-hmm. and they didn't glue them together very well. Say, those were not library bindings. <laughs> no, they yeah. were not. Um, and we actually, I, I will say that the librarians at the time, the whole crew of us that were all working together at the time were the ones that basically yelled at the manga publishers enough to say like, your binding is terrible. We would buy so many books if you would just bind it and get better paper. And they did. Um, they fixed it. And that's why a lot of manga actually lasts now. Because it was hundred, hundreds of circulations. I mean, people. I think people don't quite realize how many times a book like that will go out. And librarians were doing things like ring binding them and doing all this stuff to try to keep them together. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I mean, I've been checking books out from my local library, a lot of the teen books, and I'm frequently having to wait weeks for somebody to return one of like 10 copies or something. Sure. Of something yeah. that's in the system. And I'm not, and I'm just checking out like weird indie books and those are still very <laughs> yes. difficult to get. And by books in this case, you mean graphic novels. They're also books, Gina. They are. Yes. I just want to be clear. Anyway, sorry. Um, yeah. So you, you have done the industry a great service, Robin, by convincing manga publishers to find their books better so they don't <laughs> fall apart and librarians are more willing to, to be shelving them. We all thank you. <laughs> also, so you you were talking earlier about like the teen librarian. One, I'm assuming you mean a librarian in charge of teen books and not a teen who is a librarian. Yes, <laughs> I think I figured. Although the image of teen librarian as in like a superhero name was pretty good. Um, That'd be kind of awesome. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, do you? I mean, that that points out like different librarians are kind of in charge of different stuff. Like at this point in your career, like what are your responsibilities in your personal library that you're based out of? 
So I am a public librarian, um, and that means that I work with the public most of the time. And that is differentiated by the fact that, say, school libraries have a very different purpose as their mission, whereas public libraries really are public. They're where you can find anything um, and where you should be able to find anything, or we can find it for you. And we work with a lot of different people, and, and even being a, a teen librarian, which is what I am, which means I mainly work with kids who are... Currently, the definition in my library is grades 8 to 12, uh, so that's anywhere from 12 to 18, basically. So I do a lot of work with those folks, but I also work with, obviously, parents, younger kids, anybody who walks through into the teen room is someone that I will deal with. Um, and my focus is on the teens themselves, so it's it's giving them a collection that meets what they want, what they need. And that can be all range of things. Um, it's also maintaining the space that is theirs. We have a teen room in my library. So that is for the teens only when uh, school is not in session. So they get to be the, pretty much the only ones in that space. There's a, an age restriction um, for them so that they feel like they own it and that it's theirs. And I'm usually the only adult in the room. Uh, I run programs a lot of the time. We have weekly programs, monthly programs, special programs, everything you can think of. Um, as many people have discussed, libraries are community centers at this point um, more than almost anything else. And I would say that I get about 20 to 40 teens every day after school and they come in and hang out and they certainly use the books. They talk about books. They talk about comics. We have great discussions about books and reading and stories, but they also are using it just as a place to be, to hang out, to do their schoolwork. We have a huge range of things for them to do. So we have like video games and I have a giant hallway that is full of graphic novels. Um, we also do have some single issue comics in a giant cabinet that's shaped like the TARDIS from Doctor Who. Um, so uh, we have a lot of different kinds of things you can do while you're in the room. And I spend a lot of time in the afternoon. That is what I'm doing. I'm hanging out in the teen room, keeping an eye on everybody, keeping everyone occupied and, and um and helping people do what they need to do. Um, I got excited today because I actually got a reference question from a teenager, which is actually fairly rare. <laughs> um, I'm not usually answering stuff for them. So that's what I do as a librarian, as a teen librarian. I do definitely still work with comics. I'm, I'm in charge of ordering all the graphic novels and comics for the teen section. For a long time in my library, I actually ordered both teen and the adult collections because I was interested and because they needed someone too. Um, eventually... Uh, we have a new director at my library who's the person in charge of the entire library. And she loves graphic novels, so she took over the adult graphic novels just because she was excited to to get a chance. And I was happy to let her do that <laughs> um, and give it up and concentrate on my teen ones. So when you're thinking of books that you want to order for the library, like when is that happening with regards to like the book's publication? And like how are you finding these books? Um, I do a lot of different things to find comics. So... Given that I've been working in the comics world for almost 20 years, which is kind of terrifying, um, <laughs> I, um, I've gotten to know a lot of people. I've gotten to know people I trust in terms of critics, people I trust in terms of just creators that are good at recommending other creators that I should know about. So there's definitely the usual sort of following the comics industry, following different resources that are, are not library resources. So things like you know, comics blogs, comics review journals that I see. A lot of it is online at this point. And just hearing kind of what the buzz is pretty early on. Um, certainly in the library world and, and thus like for the people that are book publishers that are publishing comics, 
we get a lot of like advanced warning basically of what's coming up. <laughs> so we have things like advanced reader copies, which are the kind of galley copies of comics. Um, that there are more of them now, I think, because we can do it digitally. And that's much easier for everyone involved, I think, and probably a lot cheaper for everyone involved. And um, so that's been a really great boon that's shifted. Um, but then in general, we also have a lot of reviews that we get in advance. I do a lot of comparing and contrasting kind of between different professional journals. So things like Booklist and Kirkus and Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, School Library Journal, all of those I see in one kind of path. Um, I, I can look through the ordering system that we have. My library, for example, uses Ingram. A lot of them are very much the same, but they're, they're book ordering services, essentially. And they list every single review they have from a journal underneath the title. So you look up a book and you get about five or six journal reviews that you can see immediately. And then I will usually look through all of the reviews. I get sent them twice a month. I get an automatic list of everything that's coming out, including comics as well as uh, just fiction and nonfiction and everything aimed at teenagers. And I start to whittle through it all, see what I've already ordered and get rid of that, um, and then uh, go through and look at all the reviews. And for a lot of the titles, especially with graphic novels and comics, um, there's a fair amount of reviewing that happens but it's never going to keep up with the amount of output that's that's coming out every month. There's just a lot of comics in the world. So I think that there's still room to grow in terms of the professional coverage of what the graphic novels are that are coming out all the time. And it's always getting better. I mean, I think everyone realizes that and is working towards getting to review as many as possible. But that's why I tend to go look at blogs and the industry side of things, because they just have more people covering things faster. So I can read all sorts of things about single issues if they come out in single issues, or I can read about web comics that I know are being adapted into books that I can eventually buy. Um, I'm very aware of kind of where the buzz is on things like web comics, and it is occasionally difficult now because we have things that are published in ways that we can't buy them. Like Kickstarters, I assume. Exactly. Kickstarter is, is a great thing, but it is incredibly hard as a librarian to buy from Kickstarter or even directly from a creator. Um, I wish we had a better way to do it. And some libraries have figured that out. Um, they find funds from a different source that they can use uh, to, to purchase directly. But for example, my library does not have an institutional credit card. You know, if I do anything, I have to order it myself. And that sometimes means I just buy things and donate them to the library because I think we should have them. And sometimes I can get reimbursed, but it has to be a specific process for that. So there's a lot of wonkiness with how to order books. Um, so anything that's available through a vendor and some libraries can order on Amazon. We are allowed to after we've exhausted every other possible way. <laughs> but we can't, unless we can set up a purchase order, which is a weird, you know, kind of arcane system, then, then we can order directly from a website. But we have to set up that website as a vendor through the town and through the kind of government bureaucracy, um, or else we will not be able to order from them. So that's the trick right now. <laughs> I've actually had some seen some comics Kickstarters where one of their stretch goals is basically like library donation. Yes. Yeah. And that that's amazing. I think that's a great way to do it, especially if you want to get the word out, kind of. Um, the only problem with that is I think, it, and this is something I think libraries and perhaps comics creators can work on together, is how to make sure that libraries know that's happening. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of times librarians have no idea that there is a place they can go and request a copy of a book that was kickstarted that was expressly intended to go to libraries. 
it all depends on how interconnected you are and if you heard it from the right person, I think, a lot of the time. So that's that's something maybe we can all figure out how to build a better pipeline. <laughs> so you talked a lot about trade reviews and availability and industry buzz about things, but are there things besides like Booklist said, this is a great graphic novel that you look for in your book. Like, are you looking for like, I really wanted a story with characters who had this experience, or we just need more fantasy graphic novels in our our library? Like, are there are there things that you look for in the books beyond hearing positively about them? Well, I think there's a lot of different ways that works. I think for me as a teen librarian, I'm constantly listening to what my teenagers are talking about. They often forget I'm in the room, so I can overhear a lot of conversations. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think that's actually invaluable in figuring out, like, what are they interested in right now? Uh, I am lucky in that I have a weekly fandom club, uh, and a lot of them are fanish teens who like all sorts of things so they will tell me a lot of the current media they're consuming and that helps me figure out what it is they're looking for but that also helps me because I I get to know them as as teens and as people and they can give me a sense of kind of where we are in terms of what they're not getting and therefore where they're finding some somewhere else um so I you know obviously recently there's been a lot of interest in all kinds of diversity that you can possibly think of. And my teens are no exception to that. Lately, I would say this year, one of the things I'm always looking for is all different kinds of gender representation. All of my teens think about that very differently than I think most adults do at this point. And they, but at the same time, they're very hungry for everything you can imagine being the main character. So they want to see it, but they also want to see people it's hard to say, but it's like they want to see themselves, whatever they may be, on the page as the hero of a story, often without angst, without any sort of um, major drama in terms of relating to their identity. They don't want to have it be the focus of the story, um, which is why I think you see a large uptick in a lot of um, comics that are similar or any story really that are similar to say a high fantasy story or science fiction story or some mishmash of all of those things a romantic comedy but that are starring people that have not usually been the stars of those stories and that's my teens will always look for that they want that story um, more than anything so that you know people of color and all manner of queer folks like they just want everything they can find um, and I, for the example, the other day I had a, a teen ask me expressly for um, science fiction and fantasy adventure stories that were starring queer characters. And thankfully, I could give her a giant stack of things that she had never seen before. <laughs> so excellent. that's the kind of question that you want to make sure you're prepared for, that you know what's out there, that you know what's on the shelf, and that you get as much of it as you can if, you, if people are looking for it. Um, and the same way the other day, I had a dad asking if there was a trans a romantic comedy that I could find for, for their child. And that was exactly, I was like, okay, yes, there are these three, four or five things that I can point you to. So that's just, you know, that it's what you're looking for. Um, but a lot of it is also just looking at who's in the room, if that makes any sense, looking at my community, thinking about who's there. We do pay a lot of attention to just the general makeup of who's around. And that includes the people that don't come to the library. We're trying to figure out, you know, who is it that's coming? Who isn't here? And why aren't they here? Are we, are we doing a bad job of showing them what we have as a collection or showing them the services that we have that could help them? 
So that's another thing I think about too, is, is kind of the kids that I see every day, those are a given audience, but what about the kids who aren't coming here? You know, how can I make sure that we're helping them as well and that we have what they need when they do come in? I, I do think one of the nice things about teens, at least in my experience, is they're very, they lack snobbery about genre. So they don't care. You know, they're not one of those people. They don't tend to stand there and say, well, I don't read science fiction or I don't read fantasy in a way that unfortunately a lot of adults still do. And a lot of parents also have those kinds of restrictions when they come in asking for teens. Um, so there is a part of me that's always kind of being like, well, what does the teen actually want to read versus what their parent wants them to read or what their teacher wants them to read? Um, and that could be an interesting, like trying to find a matrix where you find a book that they'll actually enjoy, but also meets the standards of other folks. <laughs> so I think a lot of that is kind of just thinking through how much every story can be a good story. Word of mouth matters more than anything else. So if their friends like a story, then they will read it. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, uh, the latest romance or, um, or science fiction or another dystopia. It just, it has to be recommended by people they trust. And usually that's people that are either online um, and, you know, like most teens consume an enormous amount of YouTube and all manner of Instagram and recommendations come through that way, but also their friends matter the most. So I think about that a lot in terms of what it is that will actually hook their attention. What an interview we were doing the other day um, with somebody else who works with kids. One of the things that uh, she was talking about was how it's so interesting uh, because kids don't have money a lot of the time. Uh, so it makes their comic purchasing like a weird thing because you know, like their parent is the customer, but they're also the customer. So it's so I hadn't really thought about this, but of course, like libraries are hugely important for giving teens access to books, regardless of whether or not they can afford to pay for them or whether or not they can convince their parent to buy it for them. So I assume that means they're reading very different things than they would be if they had to rely entirely on what their mom will buy them for them at the mall. Yes. Um, the, I think the other big aspect that's true of libraries, especially with teenagers, is that their parents are no longer privy to what they're reading. Like, yes. we, we don't, we would never disclose what a teen is reading to their parent, um, <laughs> uh, unless the teen is standing there and gives us permission. Uh, and that's the kind of idea that they read whatever they want, they read whatever they want. In the teen room, I have, you know, it's part of our job to never question or even have a hint of judgment about what anyone asks for or what they're reading for whatever purpose. Um, and I think the teens kind of fascinate me too that way and that they are, there are things they will read only in the room. And you can see that you'll see that there's a stack of books that gets left behind every afternoon. And you know, that kid is just going through and reading <laughs> that stack of books. And you're like, okay, good to know. And it's usually helpful in the sense of just being like, all right, it's good. We have this book, even if it doesn't officially have a circulation, according to like statistics. Um, that means that I, I do actually, we have a way of counting that when it, when it does happen. But um, the example I always remember that's not so much related to comics, but which is, I think, incredibly important is that for a long time in the first library I worked in, they had a collection of books about, um, you know, changing bodies and, and kind of uh, sex education and that kind of idea. And um, they were all honor system. You never had to check them out. And it was just that you could take that book and bring it back when you were done. And that worked beautifully because it meant they never had to take it to an adult to get it checked out. No one would ever see that they were reading those books and they could still learn from the books that we had. Um, and I've always thought that was a kind of a great idea. The, the biggest change for libraries right now is that we now have self-checkout stations. <laughs> so 
Um, so no one can see what people check out. And I think that's actually helped a lot for people feeling like no one's watching them while they're um, selecting their books or checking things out. And that means, you know, that makes people feel a little less um, nervous about what they're reading. I always hope teens at least feel that. Robin, to change directions a little, I know you've done a lot of work throughout your career with the American Library Association. Can you talk a little about that? Like, what is the American Library Association and how have they been involved in graphic novels? The American Library Association is the national organization of librarians um, of all kinds. Uh, This can be anyone who works in an academic library, can be any sort of library, any sort of institution, business librarians, archivists. Um, I always remember that I went to library school with a woman who was the chief archivist for the Hopi Nation. So that's one of those things that people don't remember that that's also something you can use a library degree for. Um, So there's a lot of, of different kinds of people who work in the field who do all different kinds of collections. And the American Library Association is is the kind of organization that brings everybody under the same umbrella. And what I have done with them over the years, uh, even before I finished library school, I started a website called No Flying, No Tights, which was a graphic novel review website that started as a project in library school. It was it was just a reader's advisory project. Um, and reader's advisory is a very library jargon sort of term, um, but that just means that we recommend books. <laughs> so, um, so I did that just as a test and kind of went, well, what can I do this as for graphic novels? It seems like people are curious about them. Let's get started, like helping people find the titles that they need of all different kinds of genres and different kinds of age ranges. So I started that as a library school project, and I was very active on listservs back in the day, email listservs. Nice. And uh, so I, I was getting recognized as a person who both, you know, could speak well about comics, but also was was an advocate for them. That I, you know, loved the medium and was very enthusiastic about talking about it. And um, that led to me getting more involved with the American Library Association and what they were doing uh, first with what is called the Young Adult Library Services Association, which is a very long sort of name uh, for all of the teen librarians uh, in, in the association. And we created what was called the Great Graphic Novels for Teens list, which is a, a kind of a selection list that helps librarians across the country choose the best graphic novels for their collections And um, I helped organize the beginning of that, both just establishing what the guidelines would be for how that list would work and how the committee itself would make its decisions. And then I served on that committee for three years after we established it. That took about five years to like all in all to do that whole process. And then from there, I just I've become a comics advocate in the library world through ALA. I have done a lot of traveling to the various conferences to help present on all different like aspects of comics And um, I've done a lot of work. Initially, I did a lot of work with Japanese manga because that was a section of the graphic novel world that librarians found especially confusing. So I learned rapidly that I, one, loved manga and loved being a reader of manga and also realized I was fairly good at explaining it to people who had no idea how to even tackle it. Um, So that's something um, I always credit my mom, who is a teacher, who taught, like, taught me how to explain things to other people. Um, so that's the thing that I, I kind of started with. And um, 
as that went forward, I just kind of, whenever anyone needed me for ALA um, or I had an idea that I could propose, we would just keep working to, on a national level to kind of spread the word about why graphic novels are important, why they're a different kind of reading that's not any better or worse than reading prose, um, explaining visual literacy to people, explaining why teenagers get it so much faster than adults, depending on, on your experiences, all those kinds of questions that would come up. Um, there's a ton of questions that come up in the library about, about how to best catalog and classify graphic novels in terms of how you label them and put them on the shelves, how you shape your physical collection as a whole, like comes up, I swear, probably every three months uh, where people start asking about how to do it best. Um, I have had meetings with the Library of Congress to discuss their subject headings for graphic novels, which was a fascinating time. <laughs> um, what are subject headings? Uh, subject headings are how we group books in a library catalog so that you can find other books like them. Um, I think what a lot of people forget about both the Dewey Decimal System and the Library of Congress system is they're built around the idea of grouping things by subject. So the idea is that you're standing on a, like looking at a shelf and if you find books about comics, then you can find other books about other comics. <laughs> um, and that's kind of how it works. Um, but it was a lot of discussion about how to make that work best for what was happening in the comics world at that time. The fact that there were many, many more graphic novels in publishing suddenly, and, and the, they were kind of grappling with how to expand how they used their terms to make it clear. And then now at this point, um, I was part of what was called the Graphic Novel Member Interest Group, which was a grouping of all the librarians that were working with comics. It was more informal. Um, we didn't necessarily know who was a part of the group at any one time, and we, for eight years, did an enormous amount of work doing more things like presenting programs at the um, ALA annual conferences and at the midwinter conferences, since they have two conferences a year. Um, the biggest one is the annual conference, which is always in the summer. And in that case, we started having an artist alley where we would invite comics creators to come to the conference and be on the exhibit floor and meet and talk to librarians directly. And that includes anyone who would come to the conference. So that could be educators and bloggers and all sorts of other folks. And then from there, we finally have established this last year, um, which was just last fall, uh, what is called the Graphic Novel and Comics Roundtable, which is an official organization after that eight years of being unofficial, now we're official. Um, and mainly that just means we know who's on our team, like we know who's in the group, we know who we can talk to about anything. We have an official kind of setup with all the things one needs, like bylaws and a board. And we just had elections, um, which hopefully we'll get the results of soon. So we'll see who's officially been elected to run things in the roundtable. Um, but it also means we have things like a budget and we can do things like establish an award or a selection list that we want to establish to help um, librarians around the world and the country figure out what to buy or figure out what to add to their collections. And the, the closest thing I can usually tell people that they might have heard of is uh, the Stonewall Award, which is the award for um, basically LGBTQ, etc. representation in book form um, that has been established by the GBLT Roundtable. Um, and they are the example of kind of what a roundtable can do. They've, they've been incredibly successful in terms of how they've organized themselves and made amazing awards that really mean something to the wider world. And that's kind of what we're all thinking about. Um, but it's also a lot of helping librarians directly and educating them as best we can as a group um, for all the different kinds 
we have everyone from people who do graphic medicine, which is a very academic um, focused subsection kind of of graphic novels and is incredibly important for things like the health and wellness and the way that you can use comics to help people understand all of the kind of ins and outs of that process. Um, and then there's things like what I do, which is, I think, in some ways more obvious to people because things like manga and superheroes are at least most people know what those are in pop culture at this point. But there's a lot of really amazing stuff going on. So that's that's only just started where I think we're all still a little overwhelmed by the fact that we're now official and have like power in a way that we didn't before. Um, but we're we're excited about it. Um, and we've already got a lot of things running. I've been planning right now for the the next annual conference, which is in June. And we have a pretty great slate of programs coming. So we're excited. And uh, Robin, I feel like you have kind of undersold your role in this a little. So I just want to <laughs> be clear for everyone on the podcast that you are like a prime mover of making all of these things happen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, thank you. <laughs> it, it is it is not we meaning you and all of the other librarians in the United States. It is we meaning <laughs> like you and a few other people and a lot of work that you have done personally. Yeah, Jean and I just want our audience to understand that you're extremely hardcore, basically. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it, it's, again, it's something I care about a lot. It's something I've always loved. Um, I think as... Again, as someone who loves stories, and I, I sometimes relate this back to the fact that I also grew up as a, like a speculative fiction person. I loved science fiction and fantasy more than anything else. Um, and I used to kind of poo-poo realistic fiction because why would you want to read about real life? Uh, so, But I think a lot of the experiences I had growing up where people would dismiss science fiction and fantasy as not as good as realistic literary stories drove me bonkers and I didn't understand why people judge things that way so I think in some ways that's why I came back to comics having that same series of prejudices against them in, you know in both the format but also people just assuming they were all juvenile fantasy stories and it drove me insane so that's that's kind of why I care about it a lot is I I've never understood why people won't try different kinds of stories however they present themselves because why wouldn't you want to know more about a different story that's something different from you it's interesting it's one of the things that I love about comics and the comics community is I feel like cartoonists read very very widely in a way that authors and other genres don't always like mm -hmm. because you're in love with the format and while we all understand that it's a format and not a genre we're all reading each other's books so for instance like in prose fiction i mostly read science fiction and fantasy and maybe some nonfiction. but for graphic novels i read basically everything because it's like well what came out this year what's interesting what are my friends making and i think that's true of a lot of comics people so it's kind of like reading outside your very narrow interests also so it's a good space to be in if that's something you care about yeah I think that's very true because what I always tell people is is a, a kind of an experience I had that was very specific to comics is my parents are both physicists and I grew up in that household so science was extremely important um, and my brain cannot do higher math so I am kind of terrible once I hit calculus I was just like nope this doesn't make any sense to me and my mother was sad because she was like that's when math gets interesting and I said I'm sorry um, but uh, what's funny about it is that I nonetheless I love talking about science um, even if I can't quite understand it all the time 
but I had the great joy of uh, way back when um, the Feynman biography came out. Yes. Uh, Feynman was always a hero of my dad's and I had read um, some of his memoirs, but we read the book together, my mom, my dad and I, and wrote a a co-review of it for School Library Journal. (laughs) Um, And we had a blast doing it because for once... I was able to understand what his contributions to physics were because I could understand the comics. The language of comics made me see, you know, everything that he had done in a much clearer way than trying to understand it, either from my parents explaining it or from trying to read about it in a book. And then at the same time, my parents discovered all these kind of personal uh, details about his life and the way he felt about things and his uh, family history that they had never known. So it was this kind of great moment of being like, the power of comics has united us. Um, and I, I, I loved that experience because it, it was a thing that helped us connect in a way that, you know, otherwise probably wouldn't have been possible. Yeah. Uh, wow. Friend of the podcast, Jim Ottaviani. Yes. He's a good dude. Uh, also, I'm super excited for Hawking, which is coming out yes. in June. I am very excited about and that as well. It's going to be so good. Um. You have also taught aspiring librarians comics classes as well. Yes. How how has that been? Has it been a struggle to make those classes exist? Or is that something that like you find students for all the time and people are excited about? I find I think most librarians are interested because they want to serve their communities better. So that, you know, hopefully is the goal of most librarians in the world. But I think it, it can be funny where people draw lines, you know, they'll kind of be like, well, it's the usual, well, I like this kind of comic, but I don't like this other thing. And, you know, again, we see this with genres as well, but, you know, the stereotype is that people who really love memoir comics, is it's very easy for a lot of people to read memoirs and see why it's done as a comic and, and feel it and kind of get into the story. Um, whereas if you try to give that person, um, you know, a science fiction adventure story, they might think it's not as, as good somehow, or that it's not as valid to have in a collection. Um, So that's the kind of thing I always found interesting about teaching other librarians about it is kind of figuring out where their um, ideas were about what comics were and how I could break it down so that they would get to the ultimate point that it is a format that can tell any kind of story and reassure them that, you know, even if they tried to read a classic that had been recommended to them or uh, a kind of the books that you were supposed to read, the graphic novels that were like the top 10 best graphic novels of that year. I think a lot of people forget that the the biggest part of recommending any book is knowing the person you're recommending it to and figuring out what it is they like about stories and then giving them the book that works for them. And the same is true with comics. And I think a lot of librarians think it's simple. They think that, oh, if you like superheroes, you're always going to like superhero comics. But that's not true. There's a huge range of writing and art style that goes on even in superhero comics. So you have to know, like, well, what do you like? Do you like witty banter? Do you like action scenes? Do you like thrillers? You know, like there's all these different things that go into why you like a a story. Um, So I think a lot of that was always interesting to me to see how to figure out how to help them understand how to help other people find the comics they were looking for. And also how to make sure that you weren't passing on any sort of judgment yourself you know even if you're not a comics fan how do you figure out how to collect them how do you pay attention to what your public is asking for and make sure that you're not missing kind of things that you should know that your uh, community really like looks for and um, sometimes it's as simple as as kind of reminding people that they would say things like well I had graphic novels but they haven't really gone out and I people don't seem to find them and I, I just don't think it's working 
And usually that kind of explanation, you'd kind of look at it and go, well, where did you shelve them? Did you stick them in a, in a back corner that no one can find? Um, did you put up any signs? Did you ask people for recommendations and say, you know, hey, um, we're starting a graphic novel collection. What were, are you interested in that, that we should collect? And also things like I would say, the very simple thing I would always recommend to people is just put them on a book cart and stick them in front of the reference desk or wherever people stand around and look at books that are new, um, like displays or at the front desk where everyone's checking things out and just let people know that they're there. Because they're so flip throughable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because I think for a while there was this expectation that as soon as you got comics, they would start circulating like immediately and everyone would love them. And I was like, they have to know they exist. And, you know, it's not a guarantee that the regulars who are in your library every day know that you have comics. So you have to tell them, then they'll tell their friends. And the number of times people would just walk up and be like, Hey, there are comics here. (laughs) And then they would like tell their friends or take a photo and send it to somebody. Like that's, that's the kind of thing that like really makes a difference um, for the public. So there's just a lot of little tips and and things that I would figure out how to pass on. And some of it was also just, you know, going back to the kind of standard of Scott McCloud and understanding comics and having people understand how it actually worked. There's no right way to read a comic. Everyone does it a different way. Um, But the idea of teaching people to slow down and look at the pictures, not miss all the context that's in the images and the panels, Um, A lot of people who are only used to reading prose have a really hard time learning how to even just read anything um, that's a a graphic novel. So a lot of that was also just kind of coaching people through the basic idea of like, don't worry about it. You're not doing it wrong. (laughs) Um, Just figure out what works for you and make sure to read a book that's interesting to you. If you love romance, read a romance. If you love history, read history. And that there is a graphic novel for you that is about what you like. For the record, the graphic novels in my local library are shelved very prominently. Oh, that's good. It's only teen comics because it's a very small branch. But you walk in the library, they're right there, right in front of you. We even just reorganized the way we're doing ours, and it's already it's already working better. And we're excited. <laughs> so. Okay, so nominally this podcast is a podcast meant for comics creators. I was just going to say, how, as a cartoonist, I have some questions yes. for you. So, like, how, how do you work with authors. Are you working directly with them at all in your library? When I can, I do. Of course, we host authors and creators as much as we can. And we try to make sure that we have events that are fun and exciting of variety of kinds. Um, I will say just as a, as a, a kind of to be upfront, um, author visits can be one of the hardest things to actually make work well. And it all depends on what your community knows, who they're excited about meeting, and you knowing how to connect with the people that will come to that event. And, you know, like everyone else in the World Library struggle with, you know, how to make sure they get the word out to the people that know about any specific event. Um, I've been lucky over the years that we've had uh, a number of creators come through that we usually are coming through from publishers. So in that sense, we don't often have to pay if that makes any sense um so that's helpful when someone's on like a tour then we can we can you know have them come and have an event at our library but at the same time we also try to pay attention to who's local um who would be interesting to come in to even be on the panel discussion or to come in and just um talk to the a smaller group about what they're doing and um i've done a, a number of kind of outside of the box sort of ideas we had i know we had um Shelly and Braden, um, Sherry Pyrelene and Braden Lamb come one time during one of our mini golf events. 
<laughs> to come and sign comics um, and this like be our guest authors, which was kind of fun. And so like we we kind of poke around, see who's doing what. If there's anyone local to us, we we were happy to try to figure it out. Um, the other thing that I think again that that can be difficult is people who want to um, get their books in the library. That's like a classic library problem of people coming in and. Um, either wanting to donate books or just, you know, kind of saying you should buy my book and here's why. And that can be tricky just because it's we all have what are called collection development policies, which outline what the library goes through in order to collect everything in our collection. Ours, for example, is posted on our website. You can see what it what it says and how we figure out what we collect. But oftentimes people don't realize one, how many donations any public library gets on any given day, um, but also just what are the, the kind of restrictions of what we can buy and why we buy things and, and how we look at it. And we try to be as, you know, as, as generous as we can in terms of that. But that's a, that's a thing that can be uh, uh, honestly a turnoff if someone just comes out and says, like, you should have my book, and they have nothing but their word for it, that, that we should have their book. <laughs> basically. Um, So, uh, for example, most libraries or many libraries are required to have at least two positive reviews of any title that they put in their collection. And that can be tricky because if you, especially if you're an up-and-coming creator and you you haven't been able to get your your comic reviewed by an official like library journal or book list or Publishers Weekly, that feels like a very intimidating thing to try to accomplish. Um, And for a lot of us, like for me and in our library, we count a lot of other things as a, as a review. It doesn't have to be from one of the official journals. Um, there are other libraries that are only allowed to buy if it's reviewed in like school library journal, library journal and publishers weekly. And like they have a, like a list they have to go through. So I want to pause for a second. Cause I think this is a really sure. important point. Cause like in a few interviews coming up to this, we've, talked in passing about trade reviews but like one thing that comes up a lot is the idea like who even reads this right because most mm-hmm. like my mom is not reading publishers weekly <laughs> sure <laughs> uh if she does not work in publishing why would she right and yep. there can be this feeling of like oh well i mean if you get a starred review in publishers weekly i guess that means something but otherwise it doesn't really mean anything that's a conversation i see a lot Mm-hmm. like in private between cartoonists. And I think it's a good point to be like, it might not be obvious the ways in which your publisher having jumped through all the hoops to get Kirkus or yep. School Library Journal or whoever to cover your book might be benefiting you in ways that you can't see because you're not in the ecosystem that is using those mm-hmm. reviews. Is that? Yep, that's definitely true. I think one of the hardest things as a librarian, as I said, like I was talking about earlier that, you know, we look through all the, the official reviews and then we do our best to go out and look at blogs and a variety, a variety of other things. And, you know, I have a standard within my, my kind of, if I'm reading reviews of a title and there's some sort of question about its quality in terms of representation or in terms of kind of what it's doing as a story, that's especially something that I'm like, all right, I need to go find other people <laughs> that can tell me about whether this is doing a good job of whatever it's supposed to be representing. Um, so that's like a, a, an immediate sort of, I need to go find other folks who are from whatever that community is and make sure this book is actually aligning with what makes sense. Um, but at the same time, that is a lot of work. There are weeks when I when I get all the reviews that are sent to me, um, the titles that I need to look at that are coming out in that, you know, second uh, batch of emails, basically, uh, that comes in the middle of the month, that can be up to about 300, 400 titles that I'm supposed to look through and read within um, about a week and figure out an order. And so that's, it's a lot of reading reviews. It's a lot of just kind of going through and being like, this I already have, this I don't already have, like, 
what am I looking for? So all of those reviews that are in those journals are incredibly important for the way we, we select things. Um, I will say one thing that might hopefully make people feel a little bit better is very rarely do we only look at one source. You know, we look at five, six, seven sources and then kind of say, okay, what's the like consensus <laughs> about this book? Um, and do I need to look further to get a better idea of it? Um, so I look at all manner of, of reviews and review journals have their own character. Um, you get to know, you know, which reviews are which kind. There's the mean ones. There's less mean ones. Exactly. <laughs> um, and there's some that are just like, it's, it's present within the journal. Like, um, Booklist is a positive review only journal. They don't publish negative reviews. So I know that about them. <laughs> um, and I kind of go through, okay, okay, Booklist likes this. And that's, because Booklist always likes whatever they're talking about. So that's, you know, helpful to know. Um, whereas other things like Kirkus don't have that. You know how that works. Kirkus <laughs> so, is legendarily mean. <laughs> yeah, Kirkus, Kirkus is kind of fascinating. Um, but, and, you know, there's also the interesting thing of, like, which journals require people to sign their reviews and which don't. So sometimes you know the reviewer and you can say, oh, hey, I usually agree with that person or, oh, that's a person I don't necessarily always agree with. Kind of like when you're listening to movie critics and you're kind of like, well, that review movie critic is always wrong. Like, I always love what they hate. So, you know, you get to know that when you when you know who's writing the review. Um, but yeah, so I think um, journal reviews are unfortunately just for sheer time purposes are the things that we read first and are, again, often required in the collection development policies that we all have to abide by. Some are much more narrow in their their kind of the way they define everything. Uh, schools have a, a narrower mission and a narrower purpose, and so they can be harder to get titles into because of just they have a different uh, set of limits. Um, public libraries are nice because, of course, even if I don't get a, a graphic novel, for example, I can usually go, hey, adult, you should get this, or hey, kids, you should get this, and they go, okay, and they get it. <laughs> so we have it in the building somewhere, even if I, it doesn't suit my collection. So you said that authors coming into the library with their books is not a helpful thing most of the time. But right. that you've also talked about conferences, you've talked about online reviews, you've talked about kind of like buzz from your teens and buzz from your network talking about books that are exciting. It seems like there's stuff that authors can be doing that's that's like less direct than showing up in front of you that would make you excited about their books. Yes. And I, I will say there are things, you know, I've had authors send me postcards and say like, hey, this is my book that's coming out. This is what it's like. You know, this is why it's appealing. I hope you give it a look, basically. And like, that's much easier to handle than someone just kind of confronting you about getting a book immediately. <laughs> um, and I will say that most, I honestly, I don't know that I've ever had a, a graphic novelist come in and try to do that. Um, but it's because um, they're very shy and timid, like deer. And I think the other thing that's important is like, I mean, if you're me, then I'm, I'm kind of also connected to the comics world. So I see um, comics creators recommending each other's work, talking about something they're excited about coming out. Like that helps me because I just go, oh, okay, like it's that insider thing that if like, if they're excited, that means I should probably be excited too. Um, and it helps me get a, a sense of what's going on in the world. But if you're not, if you're not like me and don't have that immediate connection, I think there can be a benefit in just 
as I said, even even postcards, I, I actually get that a lot from young adult authors as well. Um, just because it's it's a I know how much of a job it is to have to promote your own work. Um, that it's a very big field, and trying to get an, anyone's attention is hard. And I think the other thing to remember, this is something I, I that has come up a lot, is that we do have to have things that are books mostly like the single issue comics are not something we can look at most of the time and a web comic is something we haven't figured out how to collect um so i wish we could um but it's it's in a general like library world that's usually true there are definitely libraries that do special collections who do all sorts of great things like zine libraries are amazing and that kind of thing exists but not every library not not the kind of library in your hometown per se so i think there's some awareness of kind of what is the format we collect what can we collect versus what you may have um to to show us yeah i think otherwise just um being out there i mean this is probably true of the entire book world but you know kind of Talking about what you're doing, who it'll mean something to is important, um, rather than just like, I made a comic and it's cool, um, but just be like, this will appeal to people who like this, and that can really help a lot. That's how librarians think. They're always thinking about, who can I recommend this to? Who is looking for this? Does this fill a gap in my collection that doesn't have, I don't have a title for? Um, and that can be very, very tiny. That can be a very specific thing that you're like, wait, I don't have any books that have this kind of lead character. Oh, no. And then you have to go figure out, you know, what, what have I missed and where can I find that? So that's that's something that's important to think about, too, is, is the kind of points of appeal of whatever work you're, you're presenting. Um, age ranges are important. Libraries do think about that a lot. Uh, graphic novels, you know, for better or worse, will always be judged more harshly when it comes to content, um, just because, at least in the United States, people react very differently to images than they do to words. So you can get away with things in, say, a young adult novel that you maybe couldn't get away with in a graphic novel in terms of explicitness or violence or something like that. Um, but so it's kind of know that part of it as well. Know, know or try to get a sense of where you think your book would end up in a collection and make sure you're kind of pitching to the right person. So you talked a little before about the great graphic novels for teens list that January, February moment in the library world where awards and lists get announced. Mm-hmm. That is something that can also, I think, help to put these books on librarians radar. Can you talk yes. a little about ALA awards and what they are and how they work and sure. why it might be very cool to be recognized with one? Sure. I think since we started the great graphic novels list, it's been more and more clear to me, actually, especially when I do talk to creators, they talk about, you know, if their book made it on a list, how much that changed their career. And that makes me feel great that that actually works. <laughs> you know, Yay. that's obviously what it's what we want to happen. But you know, it's hard for us to know, does it actually help people? Um, it extremely helps people. Yeah. And I think one of the things I think people also forget, I mean, there's the classic quote about libraries that there are more libraries in the country than there are Starbucks or McDonald's there. If you get your book on library shelves and if you win an award, like an, like one of the awards from the American library association, that book will be on every single library shelf in the country. And that's a huge shift <laughs> um, for anyone, I think. And I think the biggest thing I always talk about too, especially with comics is I think sometimes, depending on which kind of generation you are or how you found comics when you were a kid, for example, as I think most cartoonists, you know, somehow found comics that way. Um, they, for a long time, comics were not visible unless you were brought into that world. So like if you, 
for my age, I'm, I'm in my 40s, you know, they didn't exist in bookstores. They weren't in the grocery store. They weren't anywhere that I saw them. I had no idea that comics existed because I didn't have anyone in my life that would take me to a comic book store because that's where they were. Um, so I didn't know that that was a format or a storytelling mechanism that existed. Um, so I think libraries have become what used to be the corner store, the grocery store, where everybody can see comics and see that they're just like other books. <laughs> um, and so I think the fact of getting a book that wins an award and having it be on those shelves with with kind of all these different libraries and all these different places in the country and the world just shows more and more people that comics are a thing that, that are to be read and to be enjoyed by everybody and anybody. Um, so I think that volume of existing will just widen the market and widen the opportunities to make even more comics. Yay. I hope. <laughs> so can we go back to square one a little with these awards? And if, if we have people listening who are like, huh, the American Library Association gives awards? Gives awards like what yeah. <laughs> are, yeah. what are like, how, what, what are they? How do they work? What are they called? Like, what do they give awards sure. for? Yeah. The, I mean, the, the most famous awards at that I believe most of the general public know would be the Newberry Award and the Caldecott Award um, for writing for children and for um, illustration for children. Which are those little medals. Yes, they get little fancy medals. Um, and those have been around, oh gosh, now I'm, I'm feeling terrible because I don't actually know how long. But Early 1900s. Yeah, I was going to say pretty much a century at this point. <laughs> um, so yeah, they, they have um, are very well established, very carefully decided. Um, and what people may not realize is that, you know, all the people who ever serve on awards committees spend a, a, at least a year um, reviewing every possible thing that comes under their consideration for whatever award it may be and thinking about it and talking about it, arguing about it in the best possible way. Um, and there's a lot of just thinking through every time, like, well, does this fit the award criteria? What award are we trying to give? What are we trying to recognize? What does this mean? I have served on a good number of them at this point. So um, so I, I have that experience now in my bones of, of what it is like to sit in a room and argue with other librarians for hours. About uh -huh. uh, it's kind of great. You have to like it, <laughs> but I, I do. Um, and I think what, what makes the awards powerful is that it is a, a, a group of people that have all decided. Um, it's usually anywhere from five to about 15 people that have to agree on whatever wins um, or, uh, uh, or is part of a list, for example. Um, and there's a lot of different kinds of awards. We talked about the Stonewall Award, um, but things like um, the Newbery and Caldecott, there's a number of children's awards that exist, the Coretta Scott King, um, and a whole number of them that are, are very important for libraries. And they, they do. I mean, in the classic way, they move books in a way that is kind of a power to be seen. That, you know, if you win a Caldecott Award, that picture book will be in every single library immediately within like a week of when it wins. Um, and so if, if they didn't already have it. <laughs> so um, and then you get more copies because more people want to read it. So, you know, it, it makes an impact that way. Um, but I think I'm trying to think, I mean, for my, my range of things that the awards that I think of is obviously great graphic novels for teens is, is a specific list that I thoroughly enjoyed in, in, um, watching it go. Um, but I also have been, for example, a, a member of the Prince Award Committee, which is basically the equivalent of the Newbery. It's a literary quality of teen fiction. Um, actually it doesn't have to be fiction. It can be anything. Um, but, um, so that kind of award is very different than something that's like a popular uh, award. We have uh, 
um, popular book awards for teens as well, but they're all very different. Um, so there's a, a just all different range of awards that we give out. And I think it affects the book world as well as the um, library world. So you've got the reading list, like great graphic novels for teens or popular paperbacks or quick picks, and they're like the baby cousin of the Caldecott Award in terms of distribution, right? where, uh, you know, the Caldecott is like, all the libraries are going to be like, okay, we need this, this illustrated book for children, whereas mm-hmm. the great graphic novelist is going to be, it's, it's not one book, right? Right. Yes. Um, I don't, like, this is like, I'm trying to remember the criteria. Um, I don't think there's any particular limit of what that list must entail. Um, but yeah, selection lists are a little different because they're more practical, if that makes any sense. They're much more kind of, here is a list of books that we recommend um, for a wide range of, of readers and purposes. Um, it's not trying to pick like one best book. It's just, these are all great and you should have them. <laughs> um, one of the trickier parts with things like book lists for teens is that they go from the age of 12 to 18. So there are some places that may not collect books that are for 18 year olds because maybe that goes in their adult collection normally, or on the other end, they have it in their children's room up until a certain age and then you shift it. So every library makes their own choice in terms of what their, their kind of community standards are. Um, but at the same time, I think the lists do have a, a more significant impact than, again, than I think we all necessarily knew starting out. Um, that um, especially with uh, the format of comics initially, because people were still a little hesitant about collecting the format, I think they really, really valued having a list that gave them guidance as to what was what was good out there that they should have and on all the genres and all the types of comics. And the list has, I I know, has always had that goal of being a list of all kinds of formats and publishers and styles and, and, and making sure that people saw the breadth of what was out there through that list. Robin, if people are listening to this episode and they're like, okay, I would like to be Robin Brenner when I grow up, as, (laughs) as all people who listen to this episode should now feel, what advice do you have for them? to get to kind of the place where you are in your career from like ground zero, if they say they're in uh, doing their undergrad degree right now. To be a librarian, you mean? Uh, to be a librarian, uh, specifically one who is as awesome as you are. <laughs> um, well, I think for me, the key is to care about your job tremendously um, and to care about whatever it is you bring to your job. Uh, there are many times during the year when I'm working on something unexpected, I think, to the general public in my job, you know, when I spend time creating crafts for the teens that we're doing, when I replicate Hogwarts in the library, which we do every year, um, you know, all these kinds of things that people are just like, wow, this job is kind of crazy. How did you manage to get into this? And I'm like, well, you make your job what you want it to be. Um, Let me just say how great it is that you recreate Hogwarts in your library. Uh, I also want people to know that I think you were dressed as a Ravenclaw last time I saw you. Yes, that's usually true. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, sorry, continue. Most librarians tend to tend to that house. Um, but um, but yes, I think it's it's kind of a great uh, thing about librarianship is you can mold it into what it is you care about. You can use the degree to do a lot of different things. And for me, that was working with teenagers. Um, I do always say like there the reasons I like the job that I have that are very specific are. One, I like being a part of helping a teenager find the book they need at the right time, at the right moment, 
and make that connection. Because I think most people when they are young, especially when you're a teenager, is when you're figuring out who you are, who you want to be, who you don't want to be. And the right story at the right time has a a significant impact, I think more than even sometimes when you're an adult. Um, So I think that's a great thing to be a part of my life, that I get to do that and help teens find the stories they need and want. Um, The other part is that people will come in and ask questions that I may never think to ask and I get to find out the answer to. And I love that. (laughs) So the scholarly side of me loves to find out information. And that's a great fun of being in a public library because you really can't tell what people are going to ask you any given day. Um, So I think the biggest thing about being a librarian and in my experience as a public librarian, especially, but I think this is true for all librarians, you have to be a people person. You have to actually like working with people. It is not about reading books all day. Um, And in fact, I never really read books on my job. (laughs) Uh, So I think there's a lot of sense of working with people, of wanting to work with people and, and making connections with the community is a huge part of the job. Um, there is also the sense of serving the community in a more passive way of of giving them the information and access and um, stories that they need to make their lives better in whatever way that may be. And that can be everything from helping someone figure out how to apply for a job to finding a fairy tale that they remembered that they read when they were six, you know, any of that is, is what we do. And it really helps the community being the focus, but the stories are the kind of the connector. Um, so as long as you care about that, you can you can get a, a kind of position like that. Um, in terms of actually the kind of practical nuts and bolts of like how one gets into a library career, um, I always recommend people to volunteer if they can, if it's possible, just to, to understand what the job actually is, to be able to see it and see how it works on the floor, um, in the front line, so to speak, um, because I think there are a lot of things people don't anticipate about what being a librarian can be. And um, the kinds of people you interact with every day, the kinds of questions you'll get every day are often surprising. But once you get used to it, you kind of get into the rhythm of what it's like. Um, But volunteering is often the best way to get that experience. You should look into the the kind of librarian you want to be. There's a lot of different requirements depending on the kind of field you might end up in. Like an archivist is very different from someone who works in a, a university versus someone who works with the public versus someone who works in a corporation. There's a lot of different ways to kind of do that. In my experience as a public librarian, um, I, I do say that you should try to figure out which aspect of the library that you like. Um, cataloging is actually a fascinating sort of art and science all to itself that I was very intrigued with when I when I studied it in library school, um, but ultimately decided I wanted to work uh, more out front with people. But um, in terms of uh, teen librarians especially, I always recommend you have to make sure that you actually like teenagers and not just, yeah, not just the books, because uh, a lot of people like young adult fiction, which is totally great because I love young adult fiction, too. Um, but if you want to work as a teen librarian, you have to actually like teenagers, even when they are being their worst. Um, and you have to just go, OK, that's what's happening today. I'm dealing with this. <laughs> <laughs> so and, and you have to be relatively chill. Um, I think most librarians can benefit from being re- relatively chill in, in the general scheme of things. But, you know, it's expecting the unexpected and and getting used to the idea that your day will be varied, that most of the time you're not going to be doing the same thing from day to day, and that there can be, like, nitty-gritty work. Um, 
honestly going through and doing all of my orders is one of those things that is like I have to have a couple of hours to sit at my desk and just read reviews <laughs> um, over and over and over again and get through the entire list and make sure that I'm making all the right recommendations and telling everybody in the ordering department what they need to need, you know, to get my orders through. Um, and you're, you're, I think, be used to the idea that things, there'll be things you can accomplish in one day, and then there'll be things that you'll spend months working on. And so be used to the fact that you may not finish. You don't have that many accomplishable tasks per day. Um, But it has a big impact once you get there. Is there anything about being a librarian or like the nature of libraries that you wish cartoonists or even just people in general understood that you haven't already talked about? Hmm. I guess, I, I mean, the emphasis on the idea that, that you are helping people and that you're working with people all day is something that is important um, that I think, again, there there is still this stereotype out there that we kind of sit quietly behind books. Um, I've been shushed by patrons multiple times because I am too loud <laughs> um, <laughs> for the library. Um, in the course of doing my job, usually I'm, I'm explaining something to someone else. Um, But I also think the idea that, again, libraries are not quiet places anymore, at least not public libraries, that they're not a place that you necessarily go to quietly study unless you can get a study room. Um, But most of the time, they're kind of boisterous and exciting places where people are doing all manner of things. It's about a lot more than, than books. And it's literacy of all kinds, not just words on a page. The thing that I always like wish people understood about librarians, and there's a lot of quotes and and kind of jokes about this idea, is that we do spend our entire day looking for stuff. We know how to find anything. So if you ever have a question, if you ever want to ask a question, it's actually faded from the public idea that you can call your library and ask us pretty much anything and we will help you figure it out. And and that that's both the fun of the job, but it's what our skills are good at. So a lot of people presume that things like, you know, Google makes libraries unnecessary because um, you know, you can Google anything and find the answer to a basic question. But the, of course, the joke is that that's not really true. We can do it faster and we can do it more accurately than almost any search engine will ever do. And again, there's the, the I can't think of the actual credit for the quote, but that, you know, librarians are Googles w- with a heart, that we are people. So we can help figure out a lot of different questions for people with the understanding of why you might be asking or what it is exactly you're looking for, even when you can't figure out how to ask the question. Um, So I think that's something we're all really, really trained for and know how to do really well from experience. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that that's actually really what we're good at. It's not that we can, you know, shush people, as, as they say. It's not that we can request all the books that you want for you. It's that we can help you figure out how to ask the question and then find it faster than you would trying to do it on your own. I actually had a friend, a, a trans friend who was trying to figure out about name change paperwork. And I was mm-hmm. like, you should maybe go to the library. And he mm-hmm. was like, no, I don't want to bother them. They have better things to do. I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure that's their job. Yep, that is what we're doing. And I, I can't imagine how many times per day people walk up and say, I don't want to bother you. But and I will say that is why I am sitting here. I, I'm waiting for people <laughs> to ask me questions. It is the fun part of the job most of the time when you get these questions. And I mean, I love it when people call and ask really oddball things like, or I love it without prologue too. They'll just like call and be like, how do you spell Poughkeepsie? And I'll be like, okay. And we'll tell them that. <laughs> or, you know, the fact that we can help people. We hilariously have people call and like figure out crossword puzzles with them and things like that. So, oh my God. 
that's disappearing a little bit because the generation that will call the library and ask that is is um, fading away, alas. Um, but we get, you know, that same sort of thing that you can ask that kind of question of us, but you can also ask really complicated questions. We had someone come into our library once trying to prove the provenance of a um, powder horn for gunpowder um, to prove that it was at the Battle of Lexington and Concord. And like, that's an amazing thing that can happen in your library. <laughs> so that's the kind of the stuff we can help with is varied and interesting. Excellent. That's awesome. Okay. So Robin, wrapping up with this episode, where can people find you on the internet? I fear at this point, I am become an old fuddy-duddy. <laughs> so um, so I'm mostly, you can find me on Facebook um, for as long as it exists. And obviously you can always email me if you go to No Flying No Tights, the website, I'm just robin at noflyingnotights.com. And that is the easiest way to get me. And I always tell people if I do not answer, email me again and I will answer. <laughs> um, never be afraid to remind me that you had a question. <laughs> and that's really the main part of the internet that I'm on. Um, I don't do Twitter as much um, and it's just because I don't honestly have time. Um, so that's usually the best place to find me. Also, I will tell people who are listening to this that Robin is very nice. And if you see her at a convention, you should go say hi. Yes. I like meeting new people all the time. You go to a lot of conventions also. <laughs> I do. Yes. I go to comics conventions when I, whenever I can. Uh, Robin, thanks so much for coming and hanging out with us and talking all about libraries. Uh, it was great to have you. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Graphic Novel TK. Um, Allie and I love libraries a whole lot, and it's our hope that after listening to this episode, or perhaps even before this episode, you have found in yourself a love of libraries as well. Up next, we're going to be talking about comics in the media, and especially more trade reviews. Uh, how do comics get there? What is up with the trade review publications? We will investigate this with you. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at graphic novel TK or email us at graphic novel TK at gmail.com. <laughs>